Today's podcast is brought to you by my number one choice in tires, Pirelli. And since I used to be a race car driver, I know a thing or two about tires. The iconic tire brand is known for its long tradition of innovation, advanced technologies, and high-quality products. Pirelli recently added the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3 to its American range. Developed to go the distance, it comes with a 70,000-mile treadwear warranty. Choose more mileage, more comfort, more control with the new Scorpion All-Season Plus 3. Ask your local dealer for a tune-up. Trust me, I'm a driver. And you know more than most people about the feeling of fear. Like you're in a car, it's going really fast, okay? And there's a party that says, I'm going to die. And then there's a party that says, I know I can put the brakes on half a second later or whatever it is you do. I mean, I've been on a track, but not like you. So you know there's that, that edge you play with? Oh yeah, it's the name of the game. Right, well, we all have that edge around food. <laughs> Right, And so, oh my God, I'm going to die. And you're like, actually, it takes me 90 days to starve to death, but you sure feel like you're going to die. And you have more time before you put the brakes on than, than you feel like you do. And then you allow your body and your reflexes to tell you what to do. Right, You get this way with fasting, but only after you drop the fear. And that's the whole reason I wrote a book on fasting was, was that it's a psychological thing about, oh my God, I'm gonna die. I didn't have tacos at noon. You're not gonna die, but man, you feel like you're gonna die. This podcast exists because I love talking to people and I love going deep. The purpose is to plant seeds of inspiration. We enter a space of vulnerability and relatability. And what you realize is that we are so much more alike than we are different. To quote Ramdas, we're all just walking each other home. And the show is just one step. I'm Danica Patrick and I'm pretty intense. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Today on the show is Dave Asprey. He is the father of biohacking. Uh, he's a founder of Bulletproof. Many of you have probably heard of Bulletproof Coffee, founder. He's a four-time New York Times bestselling science author. He's also the host of Bulletproof Radio Podcast, which I've been on and had so much fun, which led to him coming on my show. So, Man, I, I mean, there's just some episodes that are just so dense in information, and this was one of them. Like, it just, at every turn, there's things to try, things to think about, things to go by, <laughs> modalities to try. But a lot of the conversation revolved around metabolism and the things that slow it down, things that speed it up. We talked about sleep. We talked about CRISPR. For those of you who don't know what CRISPR is, basically genetic editing. And so being a biohacker, I was just super intrigued to see what he thought about it and if he would try it. So much great information. Get a pen and paper out because you're going to want to probably write down a couple of things to try. Here's to upgraded health. Such a pro, Dave. Oh, thanks, Danica. Um... Thanks for doing the show. I had so much fun talking to you. A couple, how long ago was that? A month ago or so, or maybe longer? That was a fun I, conversation. All I remember is is there's the before time, and it's all kind of mushy. So it could have been a month, could have been three months, but I remember too because you're way fascinating. You have all these aspects <laughs> to you that I totally don't know about. I mean, there's always what you see in in the public sphere, which is always 
inaccurate, but yeah, you're, you're smart. Oh, that's really nice of you. I spent a lot of my life using poor words about myself and intelligence and saying that I'm not very smart. I'm kind of stupid. I have a GED. And cause I, cause I do, I mean, like I don't, there's a lot of intelligence that I'm lacking when it comes to I don't know, history, like knowing timelines and what year did the Civil War happen and things that you learn in school. Because I, I, again, I, I left for racing when I was 16. So I didn't even finish high school. I got I got my GED. And so I dismissed intelligence a lot. But I, I don't know if you found this, but um, with doing podcasts and interviewing various different people, I've the older I've gotten, I have more of an insatiable thirst for for knowledge and um, learning about all kinds of different things. And so, having fascinating guests like yourself, I I mean, like I have a few things that I want to talk to you about that for me are are just cool things, and they're so different. And I'm not an expert in them, um, but I totally want your opinion. And so, I learn about that, or at least I scratch the surface on it. So, I don't know if you feel the same, but I feel like intelligence is. Growing at a much better rate than it ever used to. You might be selling yourself short. <laughs> so, so there's knowledge and there's intelligence. Okay, you're acquiring knowledge rapidly, but someone who doesn't have intelligence can't make use of knowledge. And you're really smart, and now you're filling up your your buckets full of knowledge. But you can use the knowledge because you're a fast thinker. And because you have complex structures in your mind, right? So your raw horsepower, where you might, you know very well, it's actually really high. If I was to just kind of rate you, given my experience of you, against the average human, well, you're clearly going to be faster because you have to have faster reflexes. But there's more than just being fast. Like you're you're quick mentally, and you're able to assemble the knowledge. So the fact you didn't pick up some knowledge in in high school, you know what most people get when they're 16 in high school? It's not knowledge. They're just learning social skills and dating, and you know trying to figure out and not get caught from their parents doing stuff. So you didn't miss that much, but. Now you're like, oh, I'll just learn from the experts. And that's why I'm going to the 10th anniversary of Bulletproof Radio now. And I started it going, oh my God, I get to talk to the authors of the books that I read anyway. Oh, how cool is that? And that was my whole motivation. So you're totally on. Really? Have there what are what are some of those first guests that you got that you were like, I can't believe I'm talking to? Well, I mean, I, I got to interview Deepak Chopra. Which was like, wow, you know, an in-person interview there. Uh, Gary Tobbs, who wrote Good Calories, Bad Calories. Um, fascinating guy who's, you know, a, a real journalist uh, who's, who's gone really deep. Uh, a Nobel Prize winner who discovered neuroplasticity, Eric Kandel. How do you get in front of a Nobel Prize winner? Like there's a kabillion people want to talk to them. You're like, oh, I have a podcast and like, I'd be happy to share. So especially you, because you have such a big reach. I mean, you can call anyone you want and pick their brain. Like what a gift that is. Oh, it's cool. I know you can do that now too. I mean, you can, yeah. I imagine that, you know, I had a different head start because of a different career, but, um, but you and I could both probably call most anybody and, um, and, and have a conversation at least at some point in time. And that's yeah. such a cool thing. That's such a cool resource to have. Um, and I, I just, I'm fascinated. I love it. Um, so the first thing that I want to ask about, and it's because it just goes on in my head and I know I have a feeling in my body about certain things, but I also, listen to the science. I listen to people like you. And it's, it's, it's a fundamental, of course, it's about fasting. And I just feel whole, I feel horrible. Like I, I, I'm starving in the morning and I just, I mean, I was probably 
my leanest and healthiest, I'd say in general, without any testing, without any kind of, you know, any kind of testing at all, but just visually and how I felt when I ate like five times a day, like not overly eating at any point in time, I worked out, you know, one or two times a day, maybe one's an hour, maybe one's 20 minutes, but that felt my best. And I'm like, man, I I'm totally very curious about how it really, like what your thoughts are, especially when it comes to men and women, because oh, yeah. I just, I'm just, I'm just up against that resistance of the way I feel. And I keep making the excuse that it's because I'm a girl and I think there's differences between them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so something that like, I never used an excuse for in the past as being a girl, but now I'm like, it's cause I'm a girl. It's it's really clear that women are just little men. I mean, they're identical. I mean, that that assumption has been in medicine until about oh, 15, 20 years ago. We started looking at differences even in fasting studies. And I do know we've had 70,000 people go through my fasting challenge, which is a free thing. You don't even have to buy the book, but it's fastthisway.com, uh, which is, by the way, the name of my fasting book. And I've had women from you know, 22 all the way up to 82 say the same thing. Oh my God, I just went 24 hours without eating and I didn't notice. It didn't bother me. I thought I couldn't do it. So where you are, Danica, is totally normal. You and I were both told if you don't eat five or six times a day, your body will go into starvation mode and then you'll get fat, right? You heard this I bought before? that. I bought that. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And when I was at that 300 pound level, I was terrified. In fact, that's why I had a shaman drop me off in a cave for four days. And I, I write about that in the book because I knew that I would be hangry and hypoglybitchy and I would yell at people I cared about. And I was afraid of being alone and I knew I would eat if I was lonely. And I went through all of these things going, all right, I'm going to have to be like 10 miles away from any other human to do it. That was how big my fear was. Uh, and I did fast for four days, but you don't have to fast for four days. You, as a woman, there are new studies that look at women and men, 12 hour fasts, three times a week, create metabolic benefits. You're like do that. You can do that because you sleep for like eight hours. I try. Okay. So if you have an eight hour sleep, that means stop eating after dinner. <laughs> okay, have dinner at six, right. four hours before bedtime, sleep eight, sleep eight hours. Right. Congratulations, you're an intermittent faster. And, and then you wake up and you go, you know what? I'm just going to wait a little while before I eat, right? What's that, what's that going to be? Uh, and that could be suddenly it's a 14-hour fast. But that's all we're talking about because yeah. sleep time counts as fasting time. Yeah. And so a lot of women are saying, well, I should do an 18-hour fast every day. It doesn't work, and, and there's a chapter in Fast This Way specific to the research on women. And what you'll find is that if you look at the amount of stress your body's under from all sources, that determines the length of your fast. So if you wake up and you're, you're thinking, God, I slept so well, everything is perfect, you know, I, I'm just feeling really good and I haven't lifted heavy, I don't have some high stress race or event or something, I'm probably gonna fast for longer today because 
fasting is a form of exercise or stress for your body. But if instead you say, I slept like garbage last night, you know, maybe you had a, a hot flushes <laughs> or, uh, you know, maybe- Come on, you, Dave. I mean, I mean I'm not that old yet. No, but people listening are. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're 100% right. right. I, you're, and, that's you're and that's a stressor. And that's a stressor. And you're super chill. It's actually really interesting. Uh, but you- you go into all these things where, okay, you people have fights, they have a cold, right? You, something's not right. Well, okay, how much is on that side of the scale? And if you're saying, well, okay, today I was already kind of wrecked. I think I'll go fast for 24 hours and I'll lift heavy at the gym and I'll get on an airplane and fly somewhere. It's too much. And so women and men both are capable of fasting and women will hit the stress wall of fasting before men do on average. Um, and I love getting to talk with someone who totally gets all the driving analogies. So <laughs> the old expression of hitting the wall, we know where that comes from, right? Well, when you learn how to manage your biology and how to fast without being hungry, what it does is it moves the wall very far away. So I have more resilience and power and energy than I ever did before that gives you time to build up speed. <laughs> so you still can hit the wall. And I, I teach for women that the fasting wall, when you overfast, is about four to six weeks. And what happened is the first week, like, oh my God, I did it. And the next week, and I'm just gonna do a little day, bit more. And that's every day, correct? Is this, or is yeah, this it, every day? It can be every day, day. it can be even five, six days a okay. week. But you keep making it longer and pretty soon you're going to say, I'm only doing dinner. And then with dinner, oh, that's too much. I'll just fast every weekend. And eventually you get to this point where you know it worked, but now you're not feeling as good. Since it used to work, you're gonna do it even more. I call it the fasting trap. And it works with a vegan diet, it works with a keto diet, it works with anything that works at the right amount. You go past the Goldilocks zone. Sure. First sign, bad sleep. So the way you would know that your fasting wasn't working is you wake up in the morning, you feel like you're hungover, but you didn't drink anything the night before. And the second sign is monthly irregularity in your cycle. Right, that's weird. It's normally predictable, and now it's not. Huh. Oh, well, okay, maybe you should actually eat a little bit more or more often. And the third thing, if you keep pushing yourself, and by the way, people who might I don't know drive race cars or be professional athletes or be hardcore entrepreneurs, like the type A people, we are the ones who are going to push harder, right? And then you say, oh, my hair is getting thin, and it's funny. So that's the four to six week I'm fasting too much thing for women, but then for men. It's kind of similar, but it takes us usually six to eight weeks. And for men, it's sleep quality goes away. And then hmm, I'm waking up without a kickstand. That's weird. And then the third thing is my hair is thinning as well. And, and so what we're doing here is we're saying don't overtrain. And as you know, if you exercise three hours a day every day, you start to not feel good. Well, it's the same with fasting. So that's the big thing for women is it's okay to not fast the same way every day. And shorter fast when you're already having other stressors and longer fast when you're not common sense and it's, yeah and and you know more than most people about the feeling of fear like you're in a car it's going really fast okay and there's a party that says i'm going to die and then there's a party that says i know i can put the brakes on half a second later or whatever it is you do i mean i've been on a track but not like you so you know there's that that edge you play with oh yeah it's the name of the game Right. Well, we all have that edge around food. 
right? And so, oh my God, I'm going to die. And you're like, actually, it takes me 90 days to starve to death, but you sure feel like you're going to die. And you have more time before you put the brakes on than, than you feel like you do. And then you allow your body and your reflexes to tell you what to do, right? You get this way with fasting, but only after you drop the fear. And that's the whole reason I wrote a book on fasting was, was that it's a psychological thing about, oh my God, I'm going to die. I didn't have tacos at noon. You're not going to die, but man, you feel like you're going to die. And this <laughs> was what that? you had to overcome those four days in the cave, right? Or in, oh, yeah. were you in a cave? It, were you in the wilderness? What I Were you taking anything? Was it water? Was this a ayahuasca journey for four days? No, what was it? I was literally by myself in a cave with a sleeping bag, a fire, a knife, and a big big bottle of water. I mean, this is, and I resonated so much when I heard that. I, I don't remember when I heard that it was a while ago. And I was like, that's how I feel. Like I might die. People know I'm a little food obsessed. At least I, I don't like throwing food away. I always have food on me. I always have a snack with me. Like it's mm -hmm. always got to be around because at that sort of, I'd say six hour mark during the day, I'm like, I, and I might not even feel hungry actually my mood shifts before i feel yeah. hungry why is that well you're getting hangry and what's going on there is your body runs only on glucose and it's not metabolically flexible and when you eat protein it can convert to sugar in the body and so your body when you go for longer periods of time without food, or if you decide to go on a keto diet for brief periods. Keto is not good for men or women if you just do it forever. A lot of people keep trying to do that, that's bad. But you don't have to go keto, you can just do the intermittent fasting thing and your ketones will rise. And what happens is the body goes, you know what, I guess I should be pretty good at burning fat and pretty good at burning sugar. And when the body burns fat, your brains, your neurons are so happy because fat has more calories than sugar. So when you burn that, the neurons like, yeah, we wanted more power. We have more power and more focus. So you get that. Like I can't imagine doing a mental high performance thing without having some ketones present. And I, I say that because I know how I feel, but I also know because I run a neuroscience lab to teach people's brains to become high performance. It's hmm. called 40 years of Zen. And people come and spend five days with stuff glued to their head. And if I don't give them MCT oil, which helps to make ketones that feed those neurons, they can't do the high performance meditation learning stuff that they're capable of. And so you're sitting there going, okay, I want to be fast. Then you want to teach your metabolism. You should be able to burn fat and you should be able to kick over and burn sugar as well. And people who only go keto, they can't burn sugar anymore and they get insulin resistant. So in your case, your body says, emergency, could you eat? Because it's learned to always expect sugar. And when you teach the body, not you consciously, but the body to just be calm and go, oh, there's no sugar here. I'm not going to die. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kick over my fat burning enzymes and I'm going to start metabolizing fat. And then the calmness and the energy kicks on. In that moment, in that switchover, is there discomfort? Is it only a mental thing or is there an actual physio physiological reaction happening that is uncomfortable? Like you've heard of the keto flu and things like that. But is that happening when you switch over? Like, should there be that little bit of grace period where you go, okay, it's happening. When you're first learning how to do it, yes. Once you've learned, it's not uncomfortable at all. It, it's sort of like the first time you were to go swimming 
uh, in a pool that's not really cold, but it's a little bit cool. You jump in, and, but if, if you do that every day, you jump in and go, it's actually not that cold. I'm just gonna jump in and it becomes a non-event. But when you first do it, like the water was you know, only 72 degrees. What am I gonna do? And meanwhile, you've got Michael Phelps swimming in 36 degree water, you know, totally different area. I'm just saying mild discomfort. And what I do in fastest way is I teach people, look, you have a job probably, you're possibly a parent and there's lots going on in your life. Fasting is a spiritual discipline when you wanna do a spiritual fast and fasting is a high performance working thing when you do it for performance. Because when your body is busy chewing up whatever foods in your gut, it's not using that energy to think or recover. It's actually using it to make more energy. So then you wake up in the morning and you say, I don't want to feel that discomfort. Nobody does. And it's okay. You don't have to suffer to fast. So then there's three things you can do in the morning that completely remove the pain of fasting, but allow your body to still get the fasting benefits. And that's what you would start with so that then you don't feel like you're going to die. The discomfort isn't there. And you're sort of saying this was the best morning I had because I never thought about food. And like everyone can fast if you don't think about food, right? Right, exactly. So what are those three things? Okay. Um, the lowest level one is just black coffee. Right? And the reason black coffee works, and yes, I did start a coffee company. I'm not running it anymore, um, Bulletproof. But the reason I'm talking about black coffee is studies from UC San Diego show that just the amount of caffeine in two small cups of coffee doubles your production of ketones. When you're doing even a short intermittent fast, if you can get ketones up a little bit, ketones turn on a hormone that makes you feel full and they turn off the hunger hormone. Ghrelin is the hunger hormone and CCK is the fullness hormone, which is made by Calvin Klein. Okay, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of a nerd. So when you do that, okay, black coffee, suddenly it was a lot easier and people know coffee suppresses hunger, but no sugar and especially no artificial sweeteners in the coffee because that breaks your gut bacteria. Any of them, it's stevia, you name it, any You should of them. be okay with stevia or monk fruit, uh, but you're not gonna be okay with sucralose and aspartame and all those chemical ones. Those really are shown to cause harm, especially for weight loss. And then the second one is you can do a bulletproof coffee, which is grass-fed butter and that MCT oil blended in. And when you do that, something happens to the water that's in the coffee so that your body can more easily use that water even inside the brain. And it adds extra energy, but because it's got only fat, your body says, oh, there was no sugar, there was no protein. All of the hormones of fasting stay low. So you actually got some energy, but all of your hunger is now turned off. You're like, I just don't care about food and I have tons of energy. Meanwhile, your body says, I didn't have to digest anything. You're still fasting. And so all the fasting benefits happen, but you're relaxed. And the third thing that you can add either to water or to coffee or tea, whatever, is prebiotic fiber. And this is fiber that does not raise your blood sugar. It has a very neutral flavor. And so there's no one on earth I've ever met who can't put enough of this very healthy fiber that feeds your good gut bacteria in with some butter and some MCT and some coffee. You blend it up and you drink that. You're thinking, I am so not interested in food right now. But the body says, I didn't get any sugar. I didn't get any protein. Therefore, I'm going to be in fat burning mode and I'm going to do the benefits of fasting. Tomorrow morning, if you do this, Danica, you will simply not care about food. And when lunchtime comes, you're gonna say, I guess I could eat. And it's gonna be so liberating, you wouldn't even believe it. Prebiotic fiber, first off, because I've seen a couple of uh, products and I actually bought one the other day because I'm doing 
all kinds of testing, all kinds of gut health reset, all kinds of all kinds of things going on, which is fascinating stuff. And um, I've I've been diving in pretty deep, but it's always has a carbohydrate. Is that correct? Or at least the one that I found and the ones that I've seen, it always seems like a prebiotic has has is a carbohydrate base. Is that true? Prebiotics are always made out of carbohydrates. And that's okay though, because we have these stories that became a part of our our cultural uh, our cultural view like we have to get our macros or how about this one proteins good for you or better yet, plant-based proteins good for you right yeah. right oh i've gone round and round about all that too <laughs> so, didn't everybody so try vegan for a minute I don't it made me really sick Man, <laughs> I, I did I, not I, enjoy it either <laughs> but here's the funny thing my favorite plant-based protein is sarin the nerve gas that was used in the tokyo it, it comes from beans <laughs> so not all proteins are good for you and not all plant proteins are good for you. By the way, don't eat spider venom, which is an animal protein. So Sounds you're going, wait, like a good idea. Maybe different proteins do different things. Maybe different carbohydrates do different things too. Got it. Got it. And, right. And the cool thing with uh, prebiotic fiber is that the body cannot digest it even a little bit. So from your body's perspective, it's invisible. It doesn't count as a carb. It's just a filler. It, well, there's two sorts of fiber. There's soluble fiber, which is prebiotic, and then there's coarse fiber, like sawdust. And your body will feel the sawdust to a certain point because it provides like space. But when you eat the other, the, the prebiotic fiber, yeah. and it has no flavor, and the more of it you eat, the longer you're likely to live. Your gut bacteria, the good guys, like, yes, let's have a party, and they start to replicate. And as they digest it, they convert it into a short-chain fat called butyric acid that is ketogenic and is really good for your gut and really good for your brain. So now I'm so glad I bought says, this I'm the other day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's totally fine that it has carbs in it unless it has sugar or unless it has digestible carbs. And this idea that prebiotics are super filling is well well supported by research and this anti-aging effect by feeding your good, your good gut bacteria we would all live longer if we had more than 20 grams of soluble fiber a day and most of us don't get that in our diet i take 60 grams a day in other words in the morning i put a couple scoops in my coffee and it disappears and then i've had more fiber than almost anyone else and uh, it tastes the same and then my body's just not interested in food I remember going down to Mexico, down to Tulum, and I think I heard that they they believe that there's two brains, one in the stomach and one in the brain, like one up here, one down there, the two brains. And one in the heart, too. One in the heart, yeah. Yeah. Where does collagen brains. fit into that? Because this morning what I did, actually, because I was like, you know, I'm going to have, so I, I put in some MCT oil. I put in a little bit of, it was a vanilla ghee. I don't know if it has to be grass-fed butter, but what I had was vanilla ghee and regular, so I used the vanilla for fun. And I put some collagen in it. So where does that fit in to add collagen? Is that not part of the protocol? Is that a different kind of supplementation? I am probably the world's biggest fan of collagen. And the reason collagen is a big rage is that 10 years ago, I started really pushing this as we, we missed this and it's become you know a, a commonplace ingredient. Before that, it was, it was not used for health. And if you are trying to lose more than say 20 pounds or your metabolism is sort of stuck and sluggish, there's a case for having protein in your coffee for a month. So when you wake up, you have 20 or ideally 40 grams of protein. That'd be four scoops of collagen. 
with just right after you wake up and you do that to reset your body's leptin and ghrelin sensitivity but that's not fasting that's telling your body hey it, it's a circadian timing like like wake up it's it, it's time for you to learn how to metabolize protein and fat when you're doing intermittent fasting collagen or any other protein will break the fast so what i recommend people do if you wanted to have breakfast that morning don't have carbs for breakfast they just make you hungry later have carbs for dinner so you can sleep better so in the morning a really good amazing breakfast is you have some butter you have some mct you can have coffee or tea whatever you like and you can throw collagen in there it's in your coffee mug you're out the door or you can drink it at your desk but it's really satisfying and the collagen of course hair skin bones joints it's it's a necessary protein that unless you drink bone broth or something you just don't get in the west uh, or you eat pig's ears like there's weird stuff traditionally chicken feet and pig's ears and all but I don't know about you those aren't my normal diet yeah let's not eat the pig's ears um so where where does metabolism fit into this because like right that's the old story like if you don't eat your metabolism slows down um but now we're having conversations here about like speeding up your metabolism by um, waking up certain hormones when you get up. So what actually slows it down? I was talking to my functional medicine doctor the other day, and she was saying that sometimes that she was saying that, that it's hard once you've had a reduction in metabolism to get it all the way back. Like if you've abused your metabolism through under eating too much calorie restriction, things like that, that it gets hard to get it back. And I don't want to believe that, you know, I want to believe that you know, we could get anything back that we wanted. So what actually gets our metabolism to drop and what, what helps bring it up other than what you just mentioned about? What an awesome, awesome question. And I would support your doctor in that it's harder to get it back, but it's not impossible. It's not even that hard. What happens with most of us as we age, our metabolism flows down or you do what I did, go on a raw vegan diet or get exposed to things like uh, toxic molds or excessive emotional or physical stress. You know, uh, uh, if you, you could have a, a car accident, for instance, and you have whiplash and you're just inflamed for a long time. I don't know and what you, you mean. Don't feel good, right? Uh, and so then all of a sudden something happens and the body says it's more stress than I can handle. And then there's a central thermostat in the body for energy production, and it's your thyroid. Right now, Hashimoto's thyroid is just rampant as a problem, and it hits women more than men, and I have Hashimoto's. I've had it since I was at least in my early 20s. And when that happens, I don't care how much you love what you do. I don't care how motivated you are. Your volume is turned all the way down. So you can yell, but the volume's down. And until you get on thyroid hormone with a doctor, your metabolism will not fix itself. You can fast all the time, you can do cold showers, and they'll just make you feel like crap. You can go to the gym and you'll just be tired. So you've gotta fix the thyroid. And anyone over 40, your thyroid is very likely to start going down a little bit, and you go to a normal doctor, not a functional doctor, and they'll say, Oh, you're within normal limits for your age. And you say, yes, doctor, but I'm tired and I'm getting pudgy around the middle and something's not right. And they say, yeah, but your labs are okay. A functional medicine doctor is gonna say, oh, you're at the lower level of what's normal and you have symptoms, let's try it. And you take thyroid and the next day, you're like, oh my God, I love my life. I love my family. I love my job. I got my vibe back. And so that's one of the ways is just thyroid, thyroid, thyroid. And it's such a big problem at all ages. The first day I had thyroid hormone, I was about 26. And I just remember thinking, I got my brain back. 
I, I, I was so grateful, like, oh, this is how I'm supposed to feel. And it was the first day. So you got to get that tested if that's happening. That's my for story reason. for sure. I mean, okay. before you go on to the next one, that's, I mean, like that's kind of part of what has sent me on the journey is like yeah. part of it was cycle stuff. And then it was like your thyroid's low and gaining weight for no reason and all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, it's very interesting. All I can say is it's very interesting. I can't say I've had that moment where I feel like I take something and I'm like, here I go. Oh my God, I feel better. Do you know why? Why? It's because your normal level is really fast. And I just, we've had enough time talking. Like you, you can, you can read someone like you live at a faster speed than most people. You just do. So for you to feel it, it's going to be different. The reason I learned all the stuff that I know is that I also normally, my clock speed is very fast, but given how sick I was as a raw vegan, how sick toxic mold made me, I got to the point where I was maybe at 10% of where I am now. <laughs> so I could feel differences because I was so wrecked. So I took thyroid medicine for, I've taken it for this certain dose for probably almost six weeks. And all of a sudden the TSH went um, way down and the T four was up, but the T3 mm -hmm. was still low. So, cause the T4 converts into T3. So the yep. message, the TSH is the message from the brain to the thyroid to convert it, right? The, the way it works is the body says, I don't have enough thyroid. Uh, and then it sends out TSH, which basically says turn up the thermostat, which is like the, the shout for more thyroid. Then the thyroid, if it hears the TSH, it says, I'll make some T4. And then the tissues convert the T4 into T3. And what's likely happening with you is it's converting into something called reverse T3 that can't be used. So people get stuck at different parts of the thyroid cycle. And when you go to a normal doctor, they say, ah, oh, your TSH is fine. And then you just feel like crap all the time. You go to a functional medicine doctor and they figure out in your case, they're probably going to give you straight T3 instead of T4, or they'll give you a mix of T4 and T3. And when you do that, that when you get T3 levels up, which is the one you feel, you should say, oh yeah, like I'm on today a little bit more than normal. And then that the, level's the, still low in me. Okay, once you get that up, that's when you're gonna feel it. Cause ultimately if you don't have enough T3, that's the thing that really sets the thermostat. Yeah, when I that's say what I told her. I was like, I don't feel any different. I don't feel any different. That's I don't why. think it's working. She's like, well, maybe she, her thought was that we overshot the dose. Mm. So kind of bring it back down because the body's saying there's plenty of T4. We don't need to make any. So there's no T, there's less T3 then. So anyway, science experiment, you'll, but you'll get there. And yeah. when you get to the point, you have enough T3. It it's, that's the thing that gives you power. The other thing that tends to decline in women and men before we like to admit it is testosterone. If your thyroid is just dialed in, right. And then your testosterone's off you'll have problems with stubborn weight gain. And for men and women, very different levels of testosterone, but it's part of what gives you your vibe, right? So you have that zest for life. And if your thyroid's off, you won't have it. And if your testosterone's too low, you won't have it. And I recommend with a, a medical doctor, you need to get your levels tested. You shouldn't just go in and just take any hormone without knowing where you are. But when you do that, your desire to do great things in your life and in the world, it just goes up, right? And of course, there's bedroom benefits for men and women too for having adequate testosterone because you want to go to the bedroom. But it's more just like, wow, I, I've got this. It's a sense of resilience and power. And it's funny when those hormones are where you want them to be, 
intermittent fasting becomes even more powerful. And if you're rested and you do intermittent fasting, you can help your thyroid and you can help your testosterone levels. But if they're already wobbly and you overfast, you'll actually suppress your thyroid. So I see people who overfast and they make their thyroid problem worse. And I see people who never fast and their metabolism problems get worse. So we're about finding the Goldilocks zone, being kind to ourselves and learning what it feels like when you fasted too much and learning what it feels like if you ate three or five times a day for two weeks in a row, how do you feel when you wake up? And, and understanding there's a, a great variance in there and finding the level for you. Yeah, the body, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, I, I sense that you're this kind of person too. There's a, there's a tendency to want to overachieve with something. Oh, of course. The right? body says... Um, I don't think so. We want to be balanced. And so it's such a great analogy for everything in life. The body just tells you with these, with the results of testing that, and with the way you feel that overachieving on anything is not going to make you feel better. So I, I, I think that it's uh it's such a, it's such a good lesson in life that it's about balance and the body is really a good example of that. It it's very much about that. And I, I wish someone had explained that to me in a way that I could have heard when I was 19. You know, I, I made $6 million when I was 26. I was a co-founder of a company that had gone public and I lost it all when I was 28, which is a little bit of a stressor. Shit. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and um, during that time though, as you know, a high achiever, you can burn the candle at both ends, but it's also possible to burn it in the middle because you can melt through the wax. And I was just <laughs> doing that because that's what you're supposed to do. And what's funny, I, I created this this field of biohacking, the idea of you know, changing or taking control of your own biology by changing your environment. And I didn't understand any of that stress stuff. And if I had, I would have said, hmm, my odds of getting autoimmunity just went through the roof. And you look at how many women get Hashimoto's, there's probably some sensitivity to environmental hormones that women have and environmental toxins more so than men. But part of it too is that women have now a really large work burden and most women still have a home burden that's greater than men. So the amount of stress, both emotional stress and just I have to get all this stuff done and you want me to feed the kids and whatever else and I just worked a 10 hour day, I think that adds up and that's one of the reasons that women get more autoimmunity, more Hashimoto's than men do. You know, And it's not that either men or women you know, have life easy all the time, but in the world of biohacking, about 55% of biohackers are women. And what I found is that women on average are so much better than men at knowing what's going on below the neck. So, so guys will type A, burn themselves up by ignoring their body. But for some reason, women seem to have a better built-in sense of what's going on in their body that makes them, it makes it easier for a woman to learn how to fast. It makes it easier to, to learn that, oh, this is what it feels like when I'm doing too much or too little. And guys, it's like, we have to sort of fall off a cliff before we notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Always healthy. These are some of the questions about the fasting about that is that, and, and just about hormones and how they work because men and women, we are different. I mean, biologically there's some differences and, um, you know, did you say that women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases? 
they are, especially Hashimoto's. Yeah. So I thought it was fascinating. I interviewed Jordan Peterson and he said that when a woman goes into the, her fertile years and gets her cycle, that her anxiety goes up. And he, he deduces that down to the fact that a woman is meant to take care of a baby. And so you are better served to be on heightened alert than than not because you have to take care of the baby. And so I wonder how, you know, the anxiety plays into, uh, it plays into it because I do think the mind is really powerful and we can talk yeah. about that at some point in time. I just thought it was fascinating. And he said it never leaves either. Once the anxiety kicks in, like that doesn't really go away. I don't agree with him on that. There's, there's some nuances there. I, I wrote, my first book was on fertility and pregnancy and how to have really? smarter kids. Your first oh, yeah. book as a guy, Agreed. that was what it was about. That's amazing. It's called The Better Baby Book. And what? it was, my wife was infertile. She's a medical doctor. And huh. uh, we put together a program to restore her fertility. And to this day, she takes about a dozen clients a year and helps them get pregnant and people, you know, around the globe. And it's uh, fertility like that. The anxiety, it changes when you have a baby. There is a real thing called mommy brain where your ability to focus changes, your sensitivity to sound, your anxiety goes up. But the anxiety before that, isn't because you're supposed to be taking care of a baby in your, your fertile years. Um, the anxiety, especially around food, comes from the fact that if you're in a world without enough resources, and that means either not enough of the right nutrients, you know, like grass-fed meat and egg yolks and the fat that is the substrate for your hormones in your brain and making a baby and without enough protein, in other words, if you're a vegan, um, or, <laughs> sorry, I was a vegan too, um, or if you, um, are then exposed to huge amounts of, of environmental stress, including just over-exercising. What that means to the cells in your body and your ovaries, oh, there's a tiger chasing you every day. Oh, and there's a famine at the same time. Now, if as a man, I was to get a woman pregnant in an environment like that, I'm not gonna die. But as a woman, if you get pregnant in an environment with too much hunting of you and not enough food for you, it is a life and death thing for your body, for the species, and for the reproduction of the species. And of course it makes sense that there'd be more anxiety about that, but that isn't just because you have to be taking care of babies once you're fertile. That's because if you had to take care of a baby when you're fertile and you didn't have the right environment for it, your body knows it's life and death and you feel that. Right, so there, there's a, a nuance there, but once you have kids, the the brain shifts, and some women it shifts much more than others, right? And this is something that Lana, my wife, uh, has thought about writing a book about because some women, you know, CEO moms, they have a baby and like I can't do the CEO job, I, I it doesn't work anymore, and other moms pop right back, and it has to do with hormone levels, and it's so fascinating, so. Hormones are so real. I mean, that's all yeah. I'm going to say is that hormones are so real. I did IVF back when I was 33 to freeze my eggs. And afterwards, I gained some weight. And I was like, I always kind of thought, they were like, ah, oh, it's my hormones. I'm getting older. And I'm like, I have this sort of like mm, little gritty attitude where I'm like, just try harder. And then it happened to me. And I was like, oh, shit, hormones are real. It's so not about trying harder. Anytime someone tells a fat person to try harder, it's like, no, like you, you might be heavy because you have an emotional issue around food. A lot of people do. I certainly, that was part of what was going on with me, but you probably have a biological issue, 
right? And it, you can fix your metabolism, you can get rid of the toxins, you can fix your gut, but it's complex and it's not, it, it's your fault in that you can fix it, but it's not something you did on purpose. And God knows it's not being lazy because people with extra weight have less energy because our energy goes into fat instead of our brains and fixing ourselves. So the heavier you are, the more of a willpower athlete you are because you're using willpower all day long. It's just not working because you're doing the wrong stuff. Okay, let's get back to metabolism. I know I interrupted and kind of took us off on a tangent. I should have let you finish. But um, so we were talking about the things that reduce it. And you were talking about thyroid. We're talking about testosterone being a part of that. Um, Are there any other sort of really mainstream things that would slow it down? A lot of people get heavy metal toxicity. Yeah, oh, me too. A ton, like mercury off the chart. Mercury and lead. Mercury, lead. There's like beryllium. There's one with a B and one with a T. Thallium? Yeah, thallium's high and beryllium. Beryllium. Beryllium's high. Yeah, like I'm doing a gut rehab, but she's like, after that, we're doing the Mm -hmm. detox, the metal detox. So I had very high mercury and lead levels, um, even in my, my 20s. And I, I was actually kind of a gray color a lot of the time. And you're trying to lose weight. These things suppress your mitochondria, the things that make energy in your cells, the things that are responsible for all the stuff you do. So the first time I got a treatment for heavy metals, it was a chelation where they would put something in intravenously and came home and my wife was like, oh, your skin's pink. That's interesting. Because <laughs> I had better oxygenation because of this. So if your metabolism isn't working right and you actually have something that slows your metabolism, well, there you go. That could do it. Mercury is a huge problem because we've burnt so much coal that so much coal, not coil, <laughs> that it's um, it's in the oceans and it's in our environment. And mercury is a pernicious toxin. If you have metal fillings, you're getting a regular dose of mercury. And for years, the dentistry association oh, yeah. fought to keep those as, oh no, that's totally fine. Yes, they're toxic waste once we pull them out and we have to dispose of them with the EPA, but when they're in your mouth, it's just fine. And that thankfully is almost done. Dentists recognized it was making them sick and it was making their patients sick. But if you're over probably 35, there's a good chance you could have mercury fillings. And if you go to a normal dentist and they drill them out, it'll release a huge wave of mercury in your body. You go to a special mercury dentist and they'll know how to safely remove the toxin from your mouth. But it may be the fish you're eating, right? And it can be other things. So you get your levels tested and you can do it with a urine test. Yeah, and that's what I did. It's really easy. It's super easy. And then you go, oh, wow, I have this going on. Now what am I going to do about it? And there's a variety of binding things for different ones. But thallium, let's talk about that one because it's interesting. Thallium is known as the poisoner's poison. And the Russians used it to kill people before they came out with like polonium and all the the cool new radioactive stuff they like to use. Um, By the way, I'm totally, I have no actual fact that they do it. This is what you hear in the the media. Sure, that's okay. Let's go with it. What, uh, uh, what, thallium does is it displaces potassium in your cells and potassium is a very important mineral we all know you need enough potassium so people who get thallium they don't know why everything is slow they don't know why they don't feel good and just over the course of a few days after a big dose of thallium you just kind of slowly die and no one can really figure out what it is unless they're a really advanced toxicologist that's why it was really good you give it to someone disappear and then they die four days later it wasn't me so how are we getting thallium the number one cause is, you know, lead's bad for you. You probably have high lead like I did as well. Okay. Well, lead was in gasoline and paint, so we took it out of gasoline. Guess what we replaced it with in gasoline? Thallium. 
Thallium is a thousand times more toxic than lead. And lead, any See, level gasoline. of lead. It's, yeah, the, the unleaded gasoline has thallium in it. So we burn that and it's all around the environment. Oh, and oh, it's not just breathing it. Breathing it's a problem. I'm guessing they have unleaded gasoline in race cars. So you probably got some there, but you don't even have to worry about breathing it. You don't breathe that much gas. The petroleum would mess with your brain long before the thallium would. It's that kale is the number one chelator of, of thallium from our soil. So kale absorbs thallium better than any other plant. And when I was a raw vegan, what did I do? I oh, pounded gobs. the kale. Which yeah. also causes kidney stones and joint pain and oxalic acid and all this other stuff. But yeah, you're getting heavy metal poisoning when you're having kale. All the cruciferous veggies do it a little bit, but kale's off the charts. Yeah. And so, blah. Were you a kale fan by any chance? I mean, I did used to eat a lot of kale. And then you said, do you know how, <laughs> what it was that video where you posted with the stomach and you're like, how do I know? What is the, how do, how do you know if you've had kale without saying you've had kale? And you're like, yeah, yeah. And your belly's sticking out. <laughs> and I was like, it's kind of like when Sideways says, I'm not going to drink any fucking Merlot. I was like, I'm not drinking any Merlot. When you said that, I'm like, I'm not going to eat any more kale anymore. <laughs> but I used to eat a lot of kale. And my functional yeah. medicine doctor said the same thing. She's like, you can clean soil of uh, thallium with uh, and and other metals maybe, but she said you can clean soil with kale. You just got to throw you it totally away when can. you once you've grown it, get rid of the kale. And if the kale is if the the soil is really clean and you love kale and you have some kale once a week, I don't care. But if you do what I used to, a kale salad every day, it it is provably not good for you. And so I, I had fun making that. That was like my first real humorous Instagram video. I, I do some Good job. Well, it totally worked. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I like to pick on kale just because it it was such a thing. And, and like, actually, I don't like it. And it's just, oh, and it's also bad for your thyroid, kale is. So there's that. Um, so, so there's the metals. And if your metabolism's not working, you know, that's interesting. And then you say, what about our gut bacteria? We mentioned prebiotic fiber. Um, there's really interesting studies that show if you take gut bacteria from a heavy person and put them in a thin person, they'll get heavy. And you can take thin person gut bacteria, put them in a heavy person, and they lose weight. So it, it's you look at that and go, maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's not that I didn't exercise enough or that I ate too many leaves of lettuce or something. It's that there's a, something wrong in the system. And what... I find interesting is these two big species of gut bacteria. One's called Bacteriodetes and one called Spermicutes. And there's a, a kind of a balance between the two. But thin people have more, more Bacteriodetes and less Spermicutes. And they're both good for you, but it's just, it's about a scale. Like which, which way do you balance the scale? And one of the reasons I believe people have lost more than a million pounds on the Bulletproof diet is that when in the morning you do that thing with MCT and butter and coffee, well, any oil, when you eat it, suppresses gut bacteria. Like, it's antimicrobial in general, particularly MCT. So that means you just kind of whacked all of your gut bacteria on, on the head. But then, the good guys, the bacteriodetes, you can't take them as probiotics. All you can do is feed them and make them grow. They like to eat polyphenols, which is the colored compound in coffee. Coffee is the number one source of polyphenols in our diet. So what you're doing, it's like you mow the lawn and then you fertilize the good guys after you just punch the bad guys. 
And then you do that over time. I think it's one of the reasons that that, that made such an effect on me. So there's an immediate energetic thing, hunger suppression, but there's got to be a shift in the gut bacteria because we only learned in the last like five or so years how important the colored compounds from plants are to shift your gut bacteria. It doesn't mean you should eat kale, right? Because you're getting all the toxins with the plant, but you can take safe forms of plant compounds that signal your body to do good stuff. Wow, that's fascinating. You can't add it. You can only feed. Because when yeah. you think about bacteria and you think about probiotics or prebiotics or any of those kinds of things, you think I can just add it. But you can't. You need to. Can you add some? Or is you that. You can add some. It's sort of like if you were to go to the, the store and you were to buy some really good seeds to plant some kind of a, a garden thing. And you just toss them in the backyard. It's not going to work. Right? But if instead you prepared really good soil with lots of nutrients and then you planted the seeds, they're going to grow. So for your probiotics to work, you have to take prebiotics. And prebiotics are sometimes soluble fiber and sometimes colored compounds from plants. But if you take a colored compound with a plant that also comes with a bunch of stuff that causes inflammation throughout your body, like, I don't know, bell peppers do that for a lot of people who don't know it, then, okay, who cares about the colored compounds because you got more downside than benefit. So what I tend to do is I get my polyphenols from blueberries, from chocolate, from coffee, from tea, uh, and from herbs and spices because they're very concentrated, right? And then I eat the veggies that don't cause inflammation. And I've spent a lot of time, there's a uh, daveasprey.com, uh, probably slash roadmap, that's kind of the condensed diet on one page you print out. It says, hey, these veggies cause inflammation for a lot of people and you didn't know it because not all plants are good for you. In fact, about 95% of plants on the surface of the planet will kill you if you eat them. Like they'll make you really sick, right? Like just go in the forest and eat some leaves and you'll be like, oh my God, what happened to my gut? So is it possible that some plants are more edible than others? And that was what I discovered was that some of my pain in my joints, some of my inflammation, even some of my weight gain was from foods that I thought were healthy that were, well, it's better than starving to death, but it's not healthy. And people take that polyphenol thing, say eat a variety of rainbow colors to be healthy. That's garbage advice. <laughs> you need the colored compounds. I bought that one too. Come on. I bought that one too. Eat the rainbow. Don't eat the rainbow. <laughs> Do you know what happens if you eat a big bucket of rainbow-colored beets? I don't. Well, you poop those you. colors? You poop those colors? <laughs> Actually, you do if you're eating the red beets. But what happens is beets are very high in oxalic acid, and they're very high in something that makes uh, nitric oxide, which people say, oh, that's good. That's what Viagra does. Nitric oxide's good for you. What they don't tell you is that oxalic acid causes kidney problems and inflammation and swelling and food cravings in a lot of people. So beets may do that. And then if you get the nitric oxide, depending on your genetics, it may be the really bad inflammatory nitric oxide, or it may be the kind that gives you erections. You just don't know. But if, if when I was a raw vegan, I'm like, ah, give me more beets. I'm going to be good. I'm like, I wonder why my joints hurt all the time and I'm cold. <laughs> and well, yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> all right. So what can we do to speed up the metabolism then? So those things are a couple of things that, you know, slow it down. What, what can we do to help it? Another one that works for just about everyone is getting enough iodine. 
we put iodine in sea salt, or not in sea salt, in regular table salt, but we also put aluminum and some other stuff that makes it not so good. So most health conscious people have switched to either sea salt or mined salt from Himalayas or from Utah, various types like that. Pink Himalayan sea salt's okay? Yeah, the pink Himalayan's the most common, right, for health people, but it doesn't have iodine in it. And so unless you're eating some oysters and stuff like that, or liver, you don't get much iodine. And iodine, in large part helps the thyroid do its job right. So if you were to increase your intake of iodine, it makes a difference. And especially if you're in your fertile years as a man or a woman, but specifically women, there's probably about a five point global IQ reduction from lack of iodine in our, in our nutrition. So if, if women, this is a global thing, it's probably less of an issue in the US because of iodized salt. But if you look around, just having enough iodine increases IQ in kids, especially babies. So how do you take iodine? You can get iodine that you literally put on your arm and you rub it in, it goes in through the skin. And it's called Lugol's iodine. You can get iodine capsules, they're usually low. But this is a cheap supplement that you can do. If you use the stuff on your skin, $25 is probably enough to last you for three or four years. Like it's, you know, you get a little bottle, put on a few drops every now and then and be done with it. The other things that are really important for getting your metabolism working at this point, we know vitamin D is just critical. You got to do that. Uh, yeah, I was too. And now I keep my levels between 70 and 90. And that is, that is one of the things where you could say, how much should you take to do that? Without a test, you will not know because your genetics can mean you need three times more than the person next to you to get the same wow. lab results. Oh, wow. At 15,000 IUs a day for me, the standard US recommended amount is 400 IUs, which is criminally low. Um, but it's huge for immunity too. I mean, this is like immunity is low when you have low vitamin D and obviously this is such a hot topic, but, um, yeah, vitamin D, lots of good purposes for that. I, I'm really happy that the 8 trillion we spent on protecting ourselves uh, from the pandemic did not go to sending vitamin D to everyone in the country. Cause I mean, who knows what we might do if we had active immune systems that could be terrifying, just terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, we could have, we could talk for hours about that, but exactly the, so I'm thinking about this, your vitamin D. The other thing that most people don't recognize is that if you want your metabolism to work right, you've got to know how to sleep. And the first ingredient for high quality sleep and for telling your body what time of day it is. Because what you want is you want your brain and all of your tissues to know that it's sleepy time. And if you do something that scrambles that system, part of your brain or your body thinks it's wake time and part of you thinks it's sleep time and then you get bad sleep. So to make your metabolism work well, you need to have it lined up. And the number one sign for your body is light. And there's a chapter in Fast This Way about how to combine light and food timing in order to become a morning person if you want to be. And I never was in my entire life, but I am now because I learned how to do this and also how to deal with jet lag. And what the second signal for timing is, is food. And if you imagine, go back 2 billion years, we're basically ancient bacteria floating in the ocean and the sun comes right overhead. We're getting all the spectrum of light and it's coming in right here. 
and it's all warm. And that's when there's the most algae because they're growing. And then we eat all the algae and we're, yay, you know, our, our bacteria stomachs are full. And we're then growing it eyes, to, yay. Exactly, right? And then the sun starts to go down. It shifts into that sunset color and it gets cooler and then we go to sleep, right? And then the sun comes up. Well, your body's still tied to that. So if you want to really rock your day, wake up in the morning and open the curtains Take off your glasses or contacts so you get full spectrum morning light in your contacts eyes. too. Contacts too. Contacts are blocking the ultraviolet. That's part of the signal. So, so don't put the glasses like, on because I take I wear contacts, but yeah. I wear glasses at night. So even in the morning, like take the glasses off too and yeah, blurrily gaze into the light. You don't even have to stare at the sun, but just ten minutes outside, do some yoga poses or something. Uh, they say 20 minutes, but honestly, 10 minutes work. And that tells your body, oh, look, the angle and color of the light, this is morning time. And it's called the SCN part of the brain. And then when should you eat? Well, in the middle of the day. So if you wanted to reset your timing, you eat between 12 and 2. And that's your primary meal of the day. And you don't have to do this forever. Most of the time we eat dinner as our primary meal. And do that and then have an earlier dinner and then at bedtime, you turn off the lights at night. You make it dim. And what I do, in fact, I'll turn this on behind me. Let's see if I can make it red back there. And I'm going to turn these guys off. My camera might not pick it up. There's oh, a red I, I light. I can see the there's red. A, Is it a border yeah, there's around a red the back light of your behind head? me that it's kind of, it's not turning. I see it. I, it's behind your head, yeah. right behind your head? Yeah, it's behind my head. Yeah. So the reason I do that is that at night, red light doesn't mess with you. And we're, we've all heard about blue blockers. It turns out there's three other colors of light that mess with you. And one of the companies I've, I've started is called True Dark. And we make glasses that block all of the stuff that messes with your sleep. And then a lot of people are saying, okay, I'm gonna be healthy. I'm gonna get blue blockers and wear them during the day because fluorescent lights hurt my eyes or LED lights. If you block out blue light during the day, blue light tells your body to wake up. So then you never wake up all the way. So blue blockers during the day are bad for you. You can block some, but not all. And at night, you need more than blue. And for me, that has been a big, a big way that I make things work. So I am 6'4". I'm about 230 pounds and somewhere around 12% body fat right now, uh, which is... Okay, I'm 48. Pretty fit. Pretty <laughs> like, fit. I'm, and I don't work out all the time. So... To come from being a 300-pound, obese, pre-diabetic person in my 20s to be able to do this without spending a lot of time on it, sleep is a part of it. And doing that thing with the True Dark glasses where I carefully make sure I sleep well, that speeds up your metabolism. One night of bad sleep lowers your ability to regulate blood sugar by 40%. This is why I'm so religious. My kids are like, Dad, you're putting your glasses on at night. You know, and now though, they'll put them on if we're traveling because they found out, oh, we can sleep if we wear the glasses. Otherwise, you know, airport lighting and hotels mess with us. Uh, and it's it's become a really big thing. Um, what do you think wear about right wearables? I feel like there's so many people that wear them. I mean, I have it, I have it, I'm training for a marathon, so I gotta watch and doing things with it that are not necessarily about sleep, but it has that feature. And honestly, I don't like it. I sleep, I mean, I'm a weird sleeper, meaning I don't wake up tired ever, like almost ever. See, you're, you're, and, you're a little bit of a superhuman. 
Okay. The number of people who hear you say that are like, I hate Danica. Like, <laughs> seriously, most of your listeners wake up feeling tired. And the few of them who've never woken up feeling tired, like you, are like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not in my universe. Because your universe is different. Because you're like, look, I, I, I'm a high performer. I wake up, I'm full of energy. And you actually like, you like vibe with that energy uh, when you, you go somewhere, when you show up with that energy when you're on the track, you show up with the energy when you're on camera and, and you can see it, right? Like, like you've got like a, like a little happy kind of playful, but it's powerful, right? And, and you can turn it on. But most people, when they wake up in the morning, they don't know how to turn it on. And I didn't. Right. And now I know how to turn it on. But it, for me, I had to fix my sleep architecture. And if you, when you look at your sleep monitor, so I'm, I have an aura ring. Um, it's O-U-R-A is the company. Uh, I've heard those are the best. Those, I mean, that's what has the best reputation. They, they are. And I, I'm an advisor and investor in the company. Oh, so I would, I would say that anyway, but uh, I wouldn't lie if it wasn't true. I validated this with Dan Gartenberg, a sleep scientist from the University of Wisconsin, who's gone through with a million dollar grant and studied this compared to other things. And I really feel confident that it's the best, but is your watch good enough? Sure. And what I recommend people do is track what you hack. If you wake up feeling great all the time, there's one or two things going on. You could have no awareness. You're like, I think I'm feeling great, but there's 10 levels above that that you've never accessed. But I don't think that's true for you, right? Because you wouldn't show up in your life the way you do if that was the case. So then you don't need to fix your sleep. So don't bother tracking it and go track something that matters to you. Because if you track everything, you just fall in this, this pit of, oh my God, maybe I didn't do it right. Am I perfect enough? And it creates anxiety. You can just toss all that, track what you hack. That's what I worry about is that with people, they let this be their dictator on whether or not they have a good day or don't have a good day in their mind because they're like, oh man, I only got five minutes of REM sleep tonight and I thought I feel great. Like I thought I had a great night's sleep and I just think that that can be a little bit. So at least we're the best of the wearables if you're going to do it Um but but sleep very important. I've always been very perplexed by my sleep, and I'm I know I can be sound like a dick when I say I don't really need sleep. I truly could. I mean, I want eight hours. I try so. I wish I could get eight hours, but truly, my number is more like six and a half to seven, and that's like me doing great. Um, but I could pretty f well function on five. Okay, we're wired the same way. Um, there's some genetic stuff that, there, but I'm going to set you free of that concern. The largest study ever done of sleep was 1.2 million people tracked over three years. And that is an enormous amount of data. And it's the only one that had enough granularity to look at the differences between six and a half versus seven versus seven and a half versus eight. Guess how long the people who live the longest sleep? I would think that's what you think, right? They sleep yeah. six and a half hours a night. They don't sleep eight hours a night. So you're actually sleeping the amount of time that a healthy person sleeps. It's not because less sleep makes you live longer. It's because healthy people need less sleep. So if you're getting enough of the right nutrients, you're living in an environment that's supportive of your biology, you it's okay to feel rested and get six and a half hours of sleep. There is really good data to support that. If you sleep eight hours a night, you die more from all cause than people who sleep six and a half hours on average. And if you need nine hours of sleep, you should really be careful because the risks of sleeping nine hours a night, of needing to do that, are greater than the risks of sleeping five and a half hours a night. Wow.
Okay, so don't push yourself to get eight hours. I don't, I don't get eight hours on weekends. I don't need it. Like I, I've gotten five times this year I've had more than eight hours of sleep. Right. right. And that's okay. I sleep six, right. six and a half hours. I'm totally well, good to go. You've changed my life now in two different ways. <laughs> One, you just told me my sleep is somewhat okay. ideal. And yeah. then the other thing that you told me when you interviewed me was that I could eat duck eggs instead of chicken eggs and I should be fine. And <laughs> literally like changed my life. I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm hey. running low. I only have eight left right now. And I'm like, where am I going to find a farmer's market? But, um, but, uh, but that changed my life. So I, I have to say thank you um, very Aww. much for that. You're so welcome. So there's one other thing I want to talk to you about, and it's, it's, it, it like gets into ethics. And I'm just kind of curious of your thoughts about it. But I, I, my brain has, I watched something about this a few years ago. It wasn't the greatest of docs. Um, then I watched another doc about this the other day, and I thought, that's amazing. And I didn't even realize it. But before I watched that, about two weeks ago, I bought a book called Codebreaker, and I have, I, in my mind, I'm so curious about CRISPR. And I'm uh. kind of curious from your perspective, what being, being a hacker, being someone who's trying to idealize things and optimize your body, how, you know, what your thoughts about CRISPR are. Maybe it's, it, are, do you check in? Do you know about CRISPR much? Oh, yeah. Okay, so maybe explain to people what it is, because again, I'm I'm really scratching the surface with it, but I'm sure. very curious, and then I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts. What you think, you know, where what what's coming down the pipeline, and if you'd be willing to do it ever. CRISPR is a relatively new technology that lets you edit a specific gene and take a very small part of it. Before we had sort of very primitive ways of trying to change genetics around. So we can now, with precision, pull out just a little bit of this and put a little bit of something else in. And of course, biohackers like me are saying, wow, maybe we can fix genetic weaknesses that we have. Right? And I believe that it's 100% ethical for us to have full control of our own biology. So if I want to get giant hoops in my ears, I want to get weird piercings, or heck, if I want to remove my left arm for cosmetic reasons, <laughs> it's my right to do that. It's just dumb. Okay, but it's my right to be dumb because it's my body and my body, my choice, right? <laughs> so um, that said, I think there are great risks that some countries are, and I actually interviewed someone about this on my show a while ago uh, who couldn't talk about some of it because of his government connections, but um, there are countries, probably including the US, but certainly some other countries who are doing that science fiction, we're going to use CRISPR to edit humans and make super soldiers from the embryo. If you are going to reproduce, Right now, I don't believe it's ethical to use CRISPR to edit your own genome in a way that could be passed down into our germline because we just don't know enough. But if you wanted to do uh, what I'm planning to do um, using uh, Liz Parrish's work, and she's been on my show, is you can go in and you can change things, things like mTOR, the ability to put on muscle. You can fix metabolic problems. In my case, I'm relatively sensitive to environmental toxins like toxic mold because of something called HLA-DR4. Can I edit those with CRISPR? Not yet, but will I? And, and would I? Yes. And in fact, I'm talking about that at the biohacking conference uh, September 17th in Orlando. 
I've been putting this conference on every year and I invite people who are doing potential gene editing for humans. Right now it's to treat diseases, but dying of old age is a disease and I wanna treat aging with CRISPR. So I think it's going to happen, but for I don't think we have a right to do it in a way that makes us pass it down to our offspring. I do know one very wealthy person who did go through and I don't believe he used CRISPR, he used another technique, but basically removed cystic fibrosis from his germline. And he did that, this is a very wealthy individual because <laughs> most people couldn't do that and also there's secrecy and stuff. Um, but overall, I, um, I'm not concerned about someone doing something stupid to themselves because we do crazy things. You know what we do sometimes? We get in cars and we drive really, really fast where we might hit a wall. Somehow like that's, that's okay, okay but it's not it okay, okay to like get healthier with something. I mean, yeah. it's just such a fascinating thing. I, 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 you know, watching this show about, you know, you know, and just thinking about the potential of, you know, ridding, you know, society of childhood diseases and things that would you know, hold them back in life and not allow them to experience the, the, the fullness that's possible. Um, you know, and I, I mean, there's some stuff you can see, man, that's kind of interesting. What a gift. And then my mind goes, yeah, there's the ethics side of it where we're messing with human nature. But from a spiritual perspective, if our consciousness is not really our body, then in the conscious and consciousness is in the collective. This is exi This exists now. Mm -hmm. Is this not just part of the path? Is this? Uh, I mean, we're just. Is this just how human evolution is going? Well, you've got to remember epigenetics. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, but not always, trumps genetics. And what epigenetics is, is that there's an entire set of things that can be turned on and off in your genetics based on the environment. So you put someone with bad genetics in a good environment, well, depending on the genes, they'll do better off, but sometimes you can't turn on a gene that's not there, and we might be able to add that gene. And that means though our environment is messing with human nature a lot, and we're spraying glyphosate on our soil, which is sterilizing the soil of bacteria that our bodies need, okay? We've messed with human nature. You and I are sitting here underneath artificial lighting with air conditioning. We mess with human nature, right? We process food. So we're already doing it in a thousand ways. And can we consciously do it? And then how do we make it so that you get to pick with full transparency what happens with the modifications you choose versus someone else getting to pick and force it on you? And there's some very dark science fiction places you can go where, oh, everyone has to get a brain implant when they're born. And I mean, we've all seen Altered Carbon, fantastic TV show. I don't know that I want to live in that world, right? So the transhumanism part of this, some of it's uplifting and empowering, and some of it is really scary. I come as a computer hacker. This is my background in Silicon Valley. So I know what bad things big companies and governments do when you give them technology that lets them do things they ought not to do to people. And I'm concerned about having any tech in my body that I don't have full control of. Uh, and I, in fact, I'm concerned about other immune systems. And also, I'm probably the last guy to get an implant that you know, like a brain implant. But I'm probably the first guy to put a helmet on that would read my brain waves and tell me how to do it better. Right? And when it gets to the genetic side, if I was working with a geneticist and it was custom for me and it was gonna cut my cancer risk by 90% and remove prediabetes and remove diabetes and it was going to remove Alzheimer's disease, 
I'm pretty darn sure that I want that custom thing 3D printed and injected into me because it's going to improve my quality of life, my energy, my ability to show up in the world, but it better not have a sneaky side thing with malware in it. <laughs> That's what I'm concerned about. Right, right. Full disclosure is the question, right? Yeah. It is indeed. And there's a lot of people who are scared of new technology like that. And you shouldn't be scared of it. You should be curious and cautious, right? And it doesn't mean you have to jump and be the first one to do any of these things. Be vicarious. You just got to be vicarious, right? I, I was going to say it, but you said it. There you go. <laughs> and we did this without saying anything we weren't supposed to say. I think that's a sign of maturity is when you can hear all sides, when you can draw your own conclusion, when there's no animosity there's no um you don't get wound up there's no there's no no yelling and screaming there's no putting your hand up or putting the wall up it's it's a matter of just fluidly kind of yeah. hearing it all i mean that's how i mean i think that you know that's 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 the ideal position to be in but that's not exactly how it all goes and so um i appreciate your vicariousness thank you your question about CRISPR is is an example of that. Some people immediately say, you can't, but look, we've done all sorts of stuff, including fly. People said that if, if we ever flew, that it would be the end of us. They said if we drove more than 16 miles an hour, all the oxygen would leave the car and we would asphyxiate. This was truly people <laughs> believe this, okay? And then someone does it and like, oh, and like, I'll raise my hand. I'm planning to be the first person to live to at least 180. Right? Maybe you I want will, to? maybe I won't. But I'm like, let's race. Right? <laughs> Actually, I shouldn't say that to you. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel confident I'd beat you in the actual race on, in a car, but the other one, who knows? Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious to see the evolution of how that goes. Is there anything um, in the pipeline that you're you're testing and working on and 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 loving? I think we have a right to recover way faster than Mother Nature wants us to. And my company, Upgrade Labs, and we've been in at the Beverly Hilton, and we're in Santa Monica, we just opened in Victoria, but we last week started doing a franchising. So I've, I'm creating at least 100 of these in the plan over okay. the next 18 months. I need one in Scottsdale, if that's possible. Oh, almost certainly Scottsdale. I can't imagine someone won't want that franchise. Right. And what's going to happen there is you can go in and you can use the technology that astronauts use and all sorts of sports professionals to recover really fast. And it takes way less time than going to a gym. You can get muscle or you can get cardio in in vanishingly small amounts of time. And then you can spend the rest of the time making the brain work better and recovering better and looking better. So I'm pretty excited that this is going to be the next wave of people just going, wow, I have more energy and time than I did before. Wow. So are there a couple of top modalities that you know of that are in the upgrade lab that people would be excited about? There's uh, one of the ones that that's unusual is called pulsed electromagnetic frequency therapy. Sounds cool. Well, this is a very powerful electromagnet that turns on and off. And people say, oh, magnets on humans, that's such pseudoscience. This is so strong, though, that you put it on your arm and, and your arm's like, dunk, 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 like your muscles are involuntarily because it I makes a current I think I sat on one of, of these. Okay, is it yeah, on a, I, so it was on a bed? It was on a bed oh. and then there was a top piece that goes on top of you. Yes. And yeah. I did this just the other day at a, a clinic, like a rehab kind of clinic. I yes, did a little some, like some infrared and then I did that bed and you turn the dial up and I had it like on my lower legs, the top panel. And mm -hmm. as I slid it, I, it 
was a decent amount, I suppose, out of 100. I think I was at somewhere around 60 or so, 65. And as I slid that top panel to sandwich my body between it, and I pulled it over my over my hips and over my stomach, I went, oh, God, turn it down. Like, all of a sudden, you're like, that has a feeling. It's almost like a nerve pain in a way, in, but you can yeah. really feel it. But it has like a electrical stim kind of like reaction to the body, but it has like a dull achiness to it even. And it hits it on a, it hit on a spot. Like my friend who did it, she said, it, it's interesting because it's not like you feel one spot and it a targets pain in one spot where it's at. And I experienced and- that in my hip, like my right hip. Hips are such a common place for it, and it it's straightening things out. It's exercising tissues. It's releasing toxins, and it's actually creating bone density. So people who do that a lot have bones that are denser than karate masters and the heaviest things. So who would have thought this could make a difference? You couldn't have done this 15 years ago because we didn't have the technology to do it. It was just emerging back then. And so there's all these things where we look back and say, the history of exercise is pick up rocks and run away from tigers. That's all there was, right? And, and that's what you do at the gym. Like the rocks are metal kind plates yeah, or maybe exactly. an elastic band or something. We do stuff with AI where you can get more cardiovascular training in five and a half minutes than a one hour spin class. And this is validated at university studies that I didn't pay for. and in the course of two months, you can spend a total of three and a half hours on an exercise bike, not per day or per week, but over three months, so almost no time at all, 12% improvement in VO2 max, which is more than anyone can get by doing a spin class five days a week, right? And so all that time you get back, so you got the benefits, but you didn't have to invest time and energy, so then where do you put the time and energy after that? Well, you can come and do neurofeedback. You can train your brain with the extra time. So that that's where it's gonna get, but the pulse electromagnetic frequency thing, if you have a sore neck, like Nikki Bella. But she had a huge neck injury, right? She had a huge neck injury. So we took her to Upgrade Labs, and when she was doing her recovery for the comeback fight, I worked with her on recovering, got her on collagen, and she did one session of the Upgrade Labs pulsed electromagnetic frequency stuff, and she got up and said, oh my God, my neck isn't hurting. Like, it really made a difference for her. How often would you recommend that then? Well, she uh, did one, probably, and it fixed it, so. Probably three times a week, but I've had countless people come into Upgrade Labs, they do one session, and go, this pain I've had for 10 years just went away. And it just stays gone because the body was stuck there and you generate more electricity with a magnetic frequency. And people are going, what? You can't do this at a gym. Like, well, no, you can't because that's not what gyms do, but you can do it at Upgrade Labs because it's actually a human upgrade center is what we're calling it. Because this isn't about lifting rocks and chasing or running away from tigers. We can do better. And this is because of AI and because of machine learning. I just want my time back and I want more energy than I was born with. And if I can get those, I win. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is it. Yeah, that's a win. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe then when you were born with baby sleep a lot, but maybe since you were like, what, 16 or 18? That's a fair point. Yeah. I, I started going off the rails uh, even as a young teen. Oh, geez. Wow. Fascinating. I'm I'm so excited. I, I hope, you know, I hope that the lab comes to Scottsdale soon. But in the meantime, um, good luck. That's that's I just love that, um, you know, technology is allowing us to feel better, look better, think better. No wonder why the world is growing in 
in technology in such a fast way because we're not only upgrading through the technology, but the technology is helping our brains upgrade the technology even more. It is. And, and you, you said something a bit esoteric earlier about you know, where your spirit is and is in the body or not. Um, you can use technology to uplift the spirit and evolve more quickly than you could have by sitting in a cave a thousand years ago. And it's okay to do that. And you can also use technology to totally quash human development. So technology is a tool, and the question is who's in charge of the technology and what did you decide the goal was? And as long as you're using it in a good way, you can be calmer and faster <laughs> and happier than you were before, and that's what makes me happy. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for helping us all upgrade. Uh, you're welcome, Danica, and thanks for sharing your really good energy on your show. I, I really like your podcast. I like your curiosity, and I like your, your quickness. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.